Our scripture reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 3, verses 22 through 27. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. So good morning. Uh, it's good to see you. My name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here at Redeemer City, and we continue this, um, well, I say we continue. I told you last week we were done with Exodus, but as we prepared for today on Palm Sunday and for next Sunday, um, Resurrection Sunday, I really wanted to hold on to some, some of the, the work we've done there in Exodus and, and say, so this is kind of a carryover. We're not really in Exodus this morning, but we're kind of leaping from Exodus into, into out of some of the implications that we've seen there. And so um, the story we've been telling since the beginning of the year is the story of God's rescue of his people from slavery in Egypt. In that Old Testament book, Exodus, it was written by Moses to the second generation who came up out of Egypt as they wandered through the wilderness on their way to the land that God had promised their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was a hard four decades. They spent 40 years kind of going from place to place, no longer slaves, but not yet settled in the land to which uh, God had called them. And there were many temptations for them to break faith with the Lord because of the hard circumstances that they were forced to endure. And so Moses wrote Exodus to remind them what God had done for them in the past and to bolster their faith as they tried to obey him in, in moving out toward the future that he had promised them. Now, the question that keeps coming up in the story as you read through it, and we're reading through it in community Bible reading right now. So as you're reading, pay attention to this, be looking for this, because this same kind of thread is woven throughout the entire book. It's this question, who is the Lord? Who is God? What is he really like? And, and everything that Moses wrote is really meant to answer that question. So you have it in Pharaoh's mouth when Moses first stands before him, all the way back in chapter 5, verse 2. Who is the Lord, Pharaoh says, that I should obey him? And so it's a statement of unbelief. And everything that happens, all the plagues, the miraculous provision in the desert, it's all meant to answer that question and to unlock Pharaoh's heart and our heart towards faith and obedience to God. So God names himself in the book, verse 12 of, or 14 of chapter 3, I am who I am. He gives us many of his names. He calls himself the Lord. He says, I am the God who heals you and so forth because God wants to be known. And because obedience to God is rooted in knowing him. And all of this culminates in chapter 33 and 34 when Moses finally uh, says, Oh God, please show me your glory. Moses says, I want to look upon your face. I want to know you. I want to see you as you, really, really, as you really are. And God offers this supreme revelation of himself, not just in his name, but as he reveals the deepest parts of his heart to Moses. When he says this, he says, I will make all of my goodness pass before you. Moses says, show me your glory. God said, 
I will make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And then it says in, in verse 5 through 7 of chapter 34, which we read a minute ago, And then the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. It's a beautiful, beautiful passage of Scripture. And I believe it's the clearest expression of the inner life of God in the entire Bible. It's, a, it's the beating heart behind the universe and all of human history. And, and I, I just, every time we read it, it just takes my breath away, really. I just stop and think, wow. But think about what God revealed in that moment, okay? And, and it's printed for you in your worship folder if you want to look back at it, you can. The commentators all say that there's a complexity to those words because, on the one hand, it's, it's clear to say that God's glory is his goodness. Moses says, show me your glory. God said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you. And that word in the original language refers to the overflowing nature of God's love, first within the Trinity, but then also to, out towards all that he has made. And so the truest part of God's heart is what he says there, that he is merciful and gracious in other words, he's not unmoved by our misery. He reacts compassionately, not indifferently, to the times when we're hurting. And he does not love us only when we're lovable. He loves us at our very worst. He loves us the very best at our very worst and does not treat us as our sins deserve. He's slow to anger, it says there, and abounding in steadfast love, the stubborn, selfless, uneven, refusing to give up, pushing through every obstacle, one-way love, and therefore... He forgives sin. Now, isn't that good news? You with me? What a God. And the words, what, what's startling to me the most probably is that the words are given at the moment of the people's greatest sin, at the lowest point for Israel in the whole story, when they forged the golden calf to worship instead of the Lord. And what is God's response? Well, it's forgiveness. He forgives them, but it's a little more complicated than that. Because there at the end of that self-revelation of God's heart in verse 7, we see how does God respond to sin? It says he forgives, but then notice it says at the same time, he says the God, slow to, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty? Now, it's a confusing statement. Everybody who, who studies the Bible carefully says this, but there's a certain tension that's expressed in those words because there is a tension in the heart of God that sin creates between his desire to forgive and the demands of justice. So in forgiving sin, God cannot just forget justice. He can't just overlook sin. He can't let evil go unpunished. And so the real glory in the God of the Bible is that he can be both at the same time forgiving and also just. That's how he reveals himself to be here. He can he can forgive and punish evil. To be truly good, as he says he is, he must do both. And that is the weight. See, that's Moses says, show me your glory. And that is the glory. That's the weight. That word means weight. And it's the weight that if it begins to sit on your heart, can change you. That's, that's the beauty in God that, that can bring you to faith in him and cause you to live in obedience to him. But, but how? See, how? That's the question that's kind of, that's really forged there in Exodus 33 and 34. How can God be both just and also forgiving? And it's really that question that sets up the rest of the story that the Bible tells. Now, 
what does all that have to do with Palm Sunday? Why, why choose Palm Sunday to talk about this? Well, I think it explains the irony of what was portrayed in the gospel reading, that Jesus was being heralded there as the king. And the crowds and the children sing Hosanna because they believe his coming into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday signaled the coming of the messianic kingdom of David. They expect that he will take the throne, that he'll kick the Romans out, and that he will rule the world from Jerusalem, as the prophets said. But, of course, it doesn't happen that way, does it? In just four short days, he will be condemned and crucified as an enemy of the state. But you and I know that he was never more king. He was never more the king bringing the kingdom than when he hung naked upon the cross for the sins of the world. Why? Why did it happen that way? Well, because of the revelation of God's heart back in Exodus 33 and 34. Jesus' death was the moment of his true glory. It was the goodness of God on display in, in high definition. And God and Jesus solving the dilemma of God's holiness and his love. I, I hesitate to use that word, but I really think it does kind of capture there's this dilemma between God's holiness and his love, both punishing sin and also forgiving sin, which of course, brings us to Romans chapter 3. And I wanted on this Palm Sunday to reflect upon the cross, specifically upon the glory of the cross, the glory of God as it's displayed upon the cross. And we see it uh, in these four headings that I've given to you in the outline in your worship folder, if you want to look there. We want to ask these questions of the cross this morning from Romans chapter 3. We want to ask the why and the what and the how, and then the what now of the cross for our lives, because the glory that God is revealing to be true of himself is answered in all of those things. If you want, we're going to do just a kind of just a reminder for all of us, a, a brief s summary of the glossary of the Christian gospel, righteousness, propitiation, faith, and boasting, the why, the what, the how, and the what now of the cross as we walk through this very quickly together this morning. Okay, so first, what is the glory, the glory of God displayed upon the cross? Well, you see it first in the why of the cross because that really is the glory. The why, the reason for the cross, really is where you see the glory the most. And it's this word righteousness, verse 25. The cross was a demonstration or was the demonstration of God's righteousness, verses 25 and 26. Because in God's divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. And then he restates himself again. It was to show his righteousness. It was to demonstrate his righteousness So at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. In Jesus. Now, what does that mean? It means that until the cross, God didn't appear righteous when he forgave sin. But the cross settled the issue of God's righteousness. Now, let me just unpack that a minute. We have to begin with what this text begins with in verse 22. It, it tells us very clearly that we are all guilty before God. Look there. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the commentators are unsure exactly what this phrase means. But I think it, it leads to this kind of consideration, that the way we typically deal with feeling guilty as we are before the Lord is to try to be just a little bit better than somebody else. Just a little bit better than somebody else. Because if I can convince myself I'm just a little bit better than somebody else, then I can feel pretty good about myself. But, but what that verse is teaching is, well, that, that's not good enough. However good you might feel is not good enough. Paul says that our differences don't make any difference. There's no distinction, he says. In God's eyes, to be a little better than somebody else makes no difference whatsoever because the standard is not some comparative righteousness. The standard is his own glory, and we all fall short of that. 
We all fail to glorify him, which is our chief end. We all seek to replace him as the glory of our lives with something else. We all fail to reflect his glory as image bearers to others. There's no exceptions. All of sin. And so Romans 3 is a hammer coming down to condemn all of our attempts at producing a righteousness of our own to stand before God in. There is no such thing. We all stand condemned and guilty before him. And something inside of us tells us that this is true. Well, Paul goes on. Well, what is God's response to this guilt, to this sin? Well, it's Exodus 33 and 34, right? Grace, steadfast love, forgiveness. But there's a problem. And the problem is this word righteousness. Because what if God just forgives? What if God just winky, wink, winks at sin? Ah, it's not that's okay. Don't worry about it. I mean, you hear, about, you hear people talk about this all the time. This is the kind of God people are looking for today. They say, you know, the wrath of God and hell and all that stuff, is it really necessary? Can't God just look the other way? Can't God just be loving and, and not have to worry about all of that stuff? Can't God do whatever he wants? Why can't he do that? And it's incredibly naive thinking. And the reason I know is, uh, is you just think about the way this works in daily life, right? Are there any really diehard baseball fans in the room? You know, like you love baseball, or I guess I should ask, are there any like baseball parents, like little league baseball parents in the room? Because you see this at little league fields more than you do anywhere else. Like, okay, here's what I mean. What happens? How upset? How upset do people get? How upset do you get when the pitcher on your team grooves a fastball on a 3-2 count and the umbar calls ball and the guy takes the base? Have you seen, have you been to a little league park lately? People lose their minds. What if the pitcher was your son or your daughter? I don't know why. I said the other night, I, I'm, I'm repenting. Last night, I think, at the dinner table, I said I wanted to be a Little League umpire in my retirement. That's the worst job. I, well, I don't even know what I was thinking. Those people, I don't know why anybody does that. They get abused. Because we perceive this, this bad call creates a wrong. It creates an injustice, and we want justice. Now, it's just a silly small example, but I just want you to see if, if we feel it on that level, you can imagine as we ramp this up, right? What if somebody backed into your car downtown and caused a bunch of damage, brand-new car, and you went before the judge to, you know, get the reparations, and the judge said, well, you know, I don't think he did it on purpose, and he just threw the case out. You'd want justice. There's something inside of us that says... There, you know, we can't just let sin go. There, there's a need for justice. Well, what about, if we feel it on that level, what about the real, the real evils of the world? God must punish sin. Miroslav Volf writes this. He said, a non-indignant God would be an accomplice to injustice, deception, and violence. If God just forgave evil, he could not be righteous. It is not moral nor right to just dismiss sin. And so Fleming Rutledge, she, she gave this, she, she wrestles through this in her book on the crucifixion, and she gave this really great analogy. She says the culture ignores the biblical theme of God's judgment upon sin as an aspect of his mercy, not the opposite of it. Now that's really, really insightful. Listen to what she says. She says, we ignore the biblical, the biblical theme of, God judgment, of God's judgment upon sin is an aspect of his mercy, not the opposite of it. 
Here's how, she, here's how she explains it. She says, imagine the magnetic needle of a compass. The upper end of the needle consistently seeks the North Pole. At the same time, uh, the same upper magnetic end is repelled from the South Pole. Now, there are not two separate magnetic forces at work, but only one. The same magnetism that causes the working end of the needle to point north also causes it to point away from the south. Thus, to be for us and for our salvation, God must be against all that would threaten or destroy that purpose. So God's heart yearns to save and forgive. He is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. That's the North Pole that his heart is always pointing to, that his heart is always seeking. But he will not clear the guilty. That's the South Pole that his heart's repelled from. So how can God forgive and still be righteous? That's the big dilemma. That's the big question. It's the question that lingers all throughout the Bible, all the way from Exodus 33 and 34, all the way here to Romans 3. How can God forgive sin and be righteous? Well, the answer, ultimately, that the Bible gives is the cross. The cross demonstrates God's righteousness in dealing with sins he had passed over. God deferred payment, is what we're told here, on the sins of the people in the Old Testament because he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, sometimes over generations, sometimes over centuries or even millennia. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But then the cross, and because of the cross, God can be both loving and holy. He can demand justice and forgive. And we see this because, secondly, not only the why, that's the why, but also the what of the cross, because there's glory in the what too. And this is the word propitiation, and it refers to God's wrath being satisfied through death, that the, the demands of God's justice being met, but the good news for us is being met in a substitute. And that's what happened on the cross. Here's the Christian gospel. Jesus died for, excuse me, Jesus died as me because of God's justice. Jesus also died for me because of God's love. The only way that God could both demand justice for my sin and also forgive my sin was to punish my sin on the cross. Now, every other religion of the world claims that the solution to sin is self-salvation, either moral reformation or enlightenment or self-actualization, whatever the case might be. But Christianity is something different. Christianity claims that the only real solution to sin is God's substitution. That God, whom we have offended, should take upon himself in Christ the cost of our offense. That's what Paul says, that it's God's own great love that propitiated his own holy wrath. And so the revelation here, and this, 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 is, this, is, uh, this is overwhelming, okay? This is, this is just absolutely overwhelming to consider that the revelation, what God is revealing to be true of himself here is not that he is so cruel that he demands death for sin. The revelation here is that God is so loving. His heart points so consistently to the true north of love and grace and mercy and, uh, and steadfast love. He is so loving that God himself gave himself in Jesus to save us from himself. That's John Stott, by the way. It's a mind-bending truth. And really, you have an illustration, the best illustration that I could provide to you uh, of these two differences in thinking about the, the kind of the normal religious impulse of self-salvation versus the Christian gospel of God's substitution in a story that Jesus told about two men, a tax collector and a Pharisee, who went up uh, to the temple one day at the evening sacrifice. Uh, and one of them was a Pharisee. He was a good guy. He was a, just a really a, a moral, 
religious. He was basically he was a um, he was a professional Christian. Okay, and so he uh, it says that this guy went up there and he stood all by himself. He stood away from other people because he didn't want them to touch him because they would make him unclean. And he prayed to God, Oh God, I'm I'm so happy that I'm not like all of these other losers. Aren't you so glad to have me on your team? You're really lucky, God, to have me. And then there was another man, a tax collector, who also went away and all alone by himself. And it says the weight of his sin was so heavy upon his heart that he fell down on the ground and he couldn't even look up to the sky. And he just beat his breast and he said, Lord, have mercy upon me. Have mercy upon me. Have mercy upon me. And the word there, have mercy upon me, is the same Greek word that's here in Romans chapter 3. What he was saying is, God, propitiate me. God, propitiate me. And undeniably what was going on is all of this. Jesus creates the setting. This is happening at the evening sacrifice when the priest comes out of the temple and the lamb is brought out and the lamb is slain and the blood flows and the priest speaks God's forgiveness over the people because of the sacrifice. And it's in that context, if you can believe it, that that religious man is saying, man, I'm the best. And there's the tax collector, and he's saying, God, my only hope is that that is for me. And that's the promise of the gospel. But how? See, the third thing is the how of the cross and this is the word faith, because Jesus' death demands, excuse me, Jesus' death satisfies the demands of God's justice so that we could be forgiven. But only for those who have faith. It has to be received by faith. And faith is the instrument, not the cause of our salvation. We are not saved by faith. The Bible says we're saved by grace through faith. And so you, you have to believe. That's how the glory of the cross comes into your life to change you. It's when you, you believe. And so faith, faith is more than just believing that Jesus died, okay? It's believing into his death. It's believing that his death was enough to pay for your sins and that there's a big difference between those two things. Faith is shifting all of your trust and confidence and hope away from yourself and relying instead on his life, death, and resurrection for your salvation. It's more than just having the right doctrine, that's the start, but it, what goes way beyond that, it's, it's something you have to do, or I should clarify, though, because the doing in faith is, a, is really a refusal to do. It's a deliberate not doing is actually what faith is, and so the cross is the sign that all of our doing is not enough, that we can only be saved through God's doing, and so believing into God's doing in Jesus means laying your own doing down, because Christianity is gospel, not religion. And every other religion, as I've said, says your works are the only thing that can get you in. In Christianity, you got to hear this. In Christianity, Christianity says your works are the only thing that can keep you out. Let's, Bob, that's hard for me because I'm a doer. If you know me, you know that I'm a doer. Martin Luther was purported to have said once, I have so much to do today that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. And I'll just confess to you this morning, I had so much to do this week that I only read the Bible and prayed one time. Now, what's the difference between Martin Luther and me? Well, he believed that he would be saved by God's doing. I still believe that the world will be saved by my doing. That glored glory refers to something that is weighty, something that matters. Well, 
here's the question for us this morning. What matters most? What you, what, what, what you do for God or what God does for you? Really, eternity, right? The day of judgment will be settled on the answer to that question. What matters the most? What is your hope and confidence and trust in what you do for God or what he does for you? You see, faith, excuse me, faith is a gift, not a work. It comes from God, not from us. So it is not just another thing that you have to do. It's the end of all doing. It's receiving and resting in Jesus, and that is still making its way into my heart. Would you pray that it would? I work and I work in the hopes that I can get through the work to be able to rest, and it never seems to come. Instead, there's just more work. But faith says, faith is something different. Faith says there is nothing else to be done because on the cross, Jesus cried out with his final breath, it is finished. To tell us thy. There's nothing left. We've come to the end. In the line, the witch in the wardrobe, the children, if you're familiar with the story, they learn of Edmund's fate because of his treachery and sin. He is to die. The white witch calls for his blood, and Lucy, despondent, asks, Please, Aslan, can anything be done to save Edmund? And I love the reply. Aslan says, All shall be done. And indeed, all has been done. Which leads, lastly, to the what now, then, if that's true. What now? What's the what now of the cross? It's where Paul ends this portion of his letter to the Romans. And he says in verse 27, so then what becomes of our boasting? Well, it's excluded. And so if you want, if you want a diagnostic, the way you know you're really believing the gospel, or the way that you know the weight of God's glory is sitting on your heart the way it's supposed to, is that you stop boasting. And boasting, of course, refers to the way that we make much of ourselves instead of making much of God. The gospel is the end of all boasting because faith is, by definition, God-glorifying. Faith is not looking to yourself. It's looking away from yourself. It's looking outside of yourself to Jesus. And so if you're believing, you're not relying on your strengths. You're not despairing over your sins. You're not thinking about yourself at all. And only the glory of God's holiness and love kept together in the cross can do that. So let me just end by showing you that really quickly. Because you see, I've said, uh, irreligion and religion are more alike than they are different. Christianity really is the different thing, but irreligion and religion are, are far more alike than they are different. And that really is the message of Romans 1 and 2. Christianity is something completely different, and that's Romans 3. So Christianity is not relativism, nor is it moralism. And one of the places that you see this in the way that irreligion and religion are very alike, is that, and that Christianity is different, is with this idea of boasting. And so if you think of God as only love or only holy, whatever it might be, it will create a distorted view of God that will lead to boasting. And this is what happens in both irreligious and religious people. So there's the irreligious, relativistic person. This is kind of just the typical secular person in our culture that tends to make much of God's love and loses sight of God's holiness. And the result is a distorted view of who God is. He's only love, right? He's only love, and that leads to presumption, to an inflated sense of self. And so this person typically would say, you know, there are no moral standards. It doesn't matter how you live, love wins, whatever the case might be. And so the boast of the irreligious person is, I don't need God, I can do it on my own. I'm doing fine all by myself, thank you very much. But then there's the religious moralistic person, the church person, right? Who tends to make much of God's holiness and lose sight of God's love and forgiveness. And the result is an equally distorted view of God's love and forgiveness, an equally distorted view of God, of who God is. He's only holy, 
that leads in most cases to security and fear, to a deflated sense of self. So the one leads to an inflated, the other leads to a deflated sense of self. But that, that leads to boasting too, because you know, right? I mean, you, you do realize self-righteousness is just insecurity in disguise. So if you wrongly believe in your heart that God's love for you is dependent upon your performance, then you'll compulsively be needing to always point out the ways you're doing it better than everybody else is. And that is the boast of the religious person. I'm better than you. God loves me more than he loves you because I've done it better. That's the man, that's the, you know, the Pharisee in the temple. But Christianity is something different. Listen, John Stott again, he says this. He says that when you face the cross and you ask why, why did this happen? Why did God choose to do things this way? He says the answer, there's two answers. It's two things at the same time. He says, on the one hand, I did it. My sins sent him there. But at the same time, the answer is he did it. His love sent him there. And he said, when those two things come together, then that's the end of boasting. Because when you can be honest about your sin, unlike, unlike the irreligious person, because you know that your sin is covered by his love, unlike the religious person, then that, see, that's the end of boasting, and that's the glory. That's the glory that can change your life. Now listen to Tim Keller from an unpublished article on the gospel. He says, without a knowledge of our extreme sin, the payment of the cross seems trivial and does not electrify or transform. But without a knowledge of Christ's completely satisfying life and death, the knowledge of sin would crush us, take away either either the knowledge of sin or the knowledge of grace in people's lives are not changed. Which is why the cross is so important. Because you see, the cross keeps those two things together. The cross is the revelation both of God's infinitely just hatred of sin and his infinitely glorious love of sinners. And what does that lead to? Well, what's the opposite of boasting? Well, it's humility, of course but also freedom and joy and wonder. Those, see, those things are the marks of a person who has the glory of God sitting on their heart. Not spiritual swagger, but, you know, not spiritual sweet and low either. No artificial cheeriness. A sober, earnest, joyful, hopeful confidence that though you are so bad Jesus had to die for you you are also at the same time so loved that he was willing to die for you do you believe that listen look again at the king riding into Jerusalem in Luke's gospel the crowds cheer him it is his moment of triumph isn't that what we call the scene but take a minute Look at his face. I don't know if you saw it when we read it a minute ago. You might need to go back there in a little bit. Look look close. What, what do you see there? What's he doing? Did you catch it? It says that he was weeping. Now, what a strange thing. When's the last time you went to a parade and the grand marshal of the parade just went through the parade line just crying the whole time? Wouldn't you think, what, what's going on? What's the matter? Isn't this a joyous occasion? Why is he weeping? It's a strange thing. Why would he be doing that as the crowds cheered him? And I think it's because he knew the awful consequences of sin and he knew the awful price that had to be paid. His heart was bursting with tender love and fierce determination to stay, to save. And I really think it comes out in his tears. And so to me, to me, because I'm, I'm one who can doubt and, and, uh, and worry and question God, to me, that's who God is. 
I mean, who is the Lord? That question that rings throughout the book of Exodus, who is the Lord? Whenever I think of that question, whenever I have doubts about how to answer that question, I think of that, that scene on that first Palm Sunday as Jesus crested the Mount of Olives coming down to Jerusalem and his face uh, wet with tears over our brokenness and the, the, the greatness of his heart to save us. And I can't really get over it, to be honest with you, because that's the glory. Moses, we're told, saw God's backside, but he couldn't see his face. What's so great about us is we can see his face. In the face of Jesus, we see the face of God. His face is stained with tears. And that's the glory. And my favorite part of that passage in Luke is he says, it's enough. Jesus said it's enough to make the rocks cry out. Isn't that amazing? But what about you? What about you? Let's pray together as we come to this table. Will you pray with me? So, Father, in these last moments we have to be together, you know, the Bible talks about the way that our hearts are veiled from seeing the truth of your glory. And so we need a work of your spirit. This stuff may feel like old hat. We're talking about the gospel again. It's all, you know, why are we talking about the same stuff we always talk about? And it's because the Bible says our hearts are veiled. So we do not see you as we ought. We, there's, there's a barrier to our seeing you rightly. We have all these distorted views. And so would you come by the Holy Spirit and work in such a way to remove the veil that we might see you with unveiled face? Because when that happens, just like Moses, who looked upon you and shone with, the, with your radiance, that we would look upon you and we would begin to shine too with that same radiance being transformed into your glory to one degree of glory to another from into your likeness consistently being made more like you but we need we need eyes that work and we need hearts that believe and trust and hands and feet that obey and that's something you must do in us and so would you come in these last moments continue to work to that end we pray in Jesus name amen Amen. And so if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, and let me be clear what I mean by that. If you have, fors you have forsaken any attempt on your own to be made right with God through your own moral efforts or good doing, and instead have said like that tax collector, Lord, be merciful to me. Your mercy toward me is my only hope. Then the good news is what this benediction says, look at the words, that his face shines upon you. Another way of saying that would be to say that his face beams. And we all know, we all know what the beaming face of a father looks like towards his children, right? The way a father beams in joy and delight and love for his children. If your faith is in Jesus, there's no more condemnation for you. There's only the beaming face of God. And so you live underneath the light of that beaming face every day. That's what these words mean. So receive them and then go uh, with your heart changed uh, <laughs> to obey him. Who is the Lord? He's the one who looks upon you to bless you. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.